My name is Rudy Kelly, and I am an herb original. I am chief. My dad was a great chief of the Simshan Nation, beloved by his people. But at home, with his family, he brought anger and pain. He told me that to succeed, I would have to leave everything behind. Now I'm on a journey to find out who and what my dad really was. The Herb Original is an all-new CBC podcast. Available now. This is a CBC podcast. Five former World Junior Hockey players are expected to face sex assault charges, according to The Globe and Mail. In 2018, a 20-year-old woman claimed that she was sexually assaulted in a London, Ontario hotel room by a group of hockey players, including members of Canada's World Junior team. Those allegations didn't become public until four years later. The case led to a reckoning about hockey culture in Canada and eventually at Hockey Canada itself. And yesterday, according to the Globe's reporting, London police asked five of the former uh, 2018 World Junior players to turn themselves in. The CBC has not independently verified these reports. The Globe and Mail's investigative reporter, Robin Doolittle, broke this story. And a warning, the conversation we're about to have will reference details of sexual assault. Robin, good morning. Good morning. What did you learn uh, from your sources about why London, Ontario police have asked these five players to turn themselves in now? I mean, in some ways, it's not a surprise because the police indicated well over a year ago that they believed that five members of the World Junior team, uh, that there were reasonable grounds to believe that these players committed sexual assault. They filed court documents um, in, uh, in 2022 about this. What the surprise has been is why this has gone on so long. So what, what the development is of this week is that they're acting on kind of what they said publicly before, that they, that they believe that these players were, um, that, ha- that they had grounds to believe that they were, um, had committed sexual assault. Well, what have you learned about when they will actually be charged? So what we know is that very recently they were told to surrender to London police headquarters to face charges. And it is an important distinction. They have not yet been charged. In in these types of cases, it's very common for police to let um, people without violent uh, records or criminal records to kind of... uh, take this on themselves and appear. It's not like they're going to go and put handcuffs on people at their home in this case. So they all have a period of time. We understand it's it's later next week that they have to present themselves to London Police Headquarters. They'll get details of the the charges that they're facing. They'll probably make some um, promises of various, you know, how they, they have to, or restrictions on, on their 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 lives at that point, and then they will appear in court, and at that point they will face charges. I have no idea when that court date will happen, but we do know that London police have scheduled a press conference for February 5. We also know that a number of hockey players in the NHL and Europe have in the past few days taken indefinite personal leave from their teams. The CBC isn't naming those players, and officials from the teams have said they don't know why those players are leaving. But what have you heard from the lawyers who are representing those players? You know, I think this is, it's a really tricky thing, right? Like the story is is everywhere and because it does touch on NHL players, um, media from across the world has been covering it. I'm seeing it in my, in my, my inbox mm-hmm. right now. And I think all across this social just, media as well. Exactly. And I think this is just something that we absolutely have to be really cautious about and we have to make sure we get it right. And this is something in journalism that we face all the time. And, uh, you know, I'd, I, I think at this point, the Globe and Mail is not, uh, 
is not drawing that aspect into the story at this moment. There is news out there that anyone on Twitter can look at. What we know for sure is that the London police have said um, they have asked five members of that junior team to appear. We do know that um, among that group, there are NHL players that we've reported that in the past. And other things that are happening right now are just not things that we feel comfortable um, uh, drawing into the story at this moment. In 2022, the woman who is at the heart of this case, who is known in court documents as E.M., sued eight unnamed players, Hockey Canada and the Canadian Hockey League, for three and a half million dollars. Mm-hmm. What does she say? This is difficult, but this is important in, in in the context of this story. What does she say happened that night in 2018 in her statement of claim? Yeah, there's two real windows into what happened. There's the statement of claim that she filed uh, in 2022. And then there is that application that I mentioned earlier in this conversation where police filed court records. It's it's called an ITO. Um, They're trying to get various investigative measures approved by a judge. And this is where we understand of, of what the police case is and what EM's allegations are. And basically she says that on the night of June 18, 2018, which is the same night as this big hockey fundraising gala in London, Ontario, EM went to a bar in downtown London, met some of the players. She was drinking heavily. They were, you know, hanging out, being young, partying. Um, and she left the bar with one of the players. They returned to his hotel room at the Delta Armories and had consensual sex. And then she says that at some point she left, and I believe she was in the bathroom, and when she came out, the room was full of players. And what we know from the ITO is that the the player, who was identified as player one, texted teammates to say to come to the room if anyone was interested in, in, um, in a sex act. And she says over the next several hours that she was sexually assaulted by those players, that she was humiliated, that, um, Various other things happened, that, and, and that she had tried to leave, that she was crying, but that the players, uh, quote, manipulated her and um, and pressured her to stay. And this is, it, it's really tricky because what we also know is that there were two videos shot in the room. And uh, EM says she wasn't aware the first one was shot, but she was aware the second one was shot. They're about six seconds and 12 seconds long. And in the first one, um, she can be seen uh, in, in the footage. Um, a player is asking her, are you okay with this? And she says, I'm okay with this. And in the second video, she's, it's, um, she appears quite anxious, uh, but sober saying, I'm totally fine with this. Like you're being so paranoid. It's fine. Like I just can't right now. And she says that she felt that she had to say this because it was very intimidating having these giant hockey players in a small hotel room and that she felt she had to go along with it. Um, But like any sexual assault case, this is a really complicated situation where, um, you know, we are relying on different narratives. Mm. The players through their lawyers in the past, and it's a really tricky situation with the lawyers where we know some of the lawyers involved, but we don't know which players they're attached to because they were initially kind of acting as a group, have, have said that they deny any wrongdoing. Lawyers for EM showed text messages to the Globe and Mail between one of the players and EM that were sent after that night. What did those text messages say? Yeah, and it's interesting. It was actually the players' lawyers who showed the text messages, right. and I mean, which was you know interesting. Um, the conversation is between EM and Player One, and it's you know the same day that she went to police, and the player says. 
did you go to police? You have to make this go away. Like you said, this was fine. And in those text messages, I wonder if I have this thing up in front of me. Um, you said you were having fun. She says, I was really drunk, didn't feel good about it at all after, but I'm not trying to get anyone in trouble. He says, I was okay. Or she says, I was okay with going home with you. It was everyone else afterwards that I wasn't expecting. Um, it kind of continues from there. And it's interesting, you know, I've done I'm not saying this shows anything either way. What I can say is I've spent a lot of time reporting on sexual violence and this idea um, that sexual assault complainants will um, will try to normalize some of this stuff afterwards or have conversations with um, with uh, with ind- individuals who who may be an accused in a case mm. is is quite common. You spoke with EM in 2022. What did she tell you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I spoke a lot with her lawyer and I had a very brief conversation with her. And we actually spoke after the, the Globe reported on the details of this video yeah. and these text messages exchanges, which are really obviously very intimate, raw moments, right? And reported it and put it in the paper. And I spoke with her a little bit after that. And she said, you know, this is, it's been really frustrating because she was quiet through all of this. It's been really frustrating um, seeing kind of bits and pieces of this story reported and kind of not being able to say anything um, and that she never wanted this public. And I think that this is, but but, but that she is interested in people um, facing accountability. And this is what's been really difficult, I'll say, from a journalistic perspective, reporting on this story is um as a consideration, this is not a case where a sexual assault complainant has come forward and said, I want attention on this. This was broken by outside media, by TSN reported on her lawsuit. And that's how this became this like national firestorm story with so much attention and scrutiny. Um, so that's been, you know, for her, from her perspective is she, she did not do any steps there to, to have this broken. They didn't leak the settlement. Um, this would have just went away. Have you spoken to her since this latest news broke? I have not spoken to her since and, and partly, um, uh, because this is now a really active file and process. It's, 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 again, from a reporting perspective, it's a tricky thing. We'll leave it there. Robin, really glad to talk to you about this, and, and thank you very much. Thanks. Robin Doolittle is an investigative reporter with The Globe and Mail. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart. And for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Katie Strang is a senior investigative writer who's been covering the hockey scandal for The Athletic. She wrote an extensive piece on this in 2022, One Night in London. Katie, good morning to you. Good morning to you. Thanks for having me. In the hockey community, such as it is, what has been the reaction, as you understand it, to the Globe's report? Well, you know, first of all, I just want to commend Robin's terrific reporting throughout this process. She's been incredible and I think shed some light um, and and provided some accountability in, in some really important places. And, you know, I think in the hockey community for so long, there has been this pervasive feeling of, you know, this process really <laughs> dragging out and taking a long period of time, you know, people have been frustrated, they've been confused, they've been confounded by, you know, why we haven't really gotten any answers. Um, and so I think, 
to some degree, yesterday's developments, you know, were were seen as, you know, kind of the first finite step toward, you know, understanding that this process will eventually have a resolution mm. um, in, in whatever capacity, however this plays out. So I, I think there was at least perhaps some, you know, relief um that you know that that there was a significant development i think there was a lot of speculation um that the nhl would take you know steps or potentially assess uh some supplementary discipline um you know even before the legal process had played out that has not happened um so i think the fact knowing that this legal process is playing out um in in taking steps forward has been seen as sort of a you know a tangible step forward i mentioned your piece uh in the athletic in 2022 one night in london in which you you report on the details of of that night but also what happened in in the days and weeks subsequently hockey canada settled this lawsuit in, in in may of 2022 a few days later the deal became public there was huge outcry to that what did you learn about hockey canada's response in the days after this alleged assault well i think we learned a number of things not just through you know that statement of claim but i think when this news surfaced and that news was broke by tsn you know, it ignited this national and, you know, um, international firestorm and and was dominating headlines. And I think that prompted, you know, people from all corners, not just sports. It, this has really been a story that has transcended the sports world. You know, you saw Canadian Parliament get, in, get involved. And in, um, so that has yielded some answers about how Hockey Canada handle these allegations. We know that, you know, when they first became aware, um, they had a number of internal discussions, uh, both with people at the executive um, and C-suite level, and then also with their insurers and uh, legal counsel. And um, that they did eventually report to police. They did um, take measures to internally probe the matter. Um, you know, I think the contours of that probe are probably something that have been heavily scrutinized. Um, and both the London police investigation and the internal Hockey Canada investigation that resulted in the immediate aftermath um, were were subsequently closed. But I, the attention and the scrutiny on this case prompted both of those entities to reopen those investigations. And as you mentioned, I mean, Hockey Canada's leaders were hauled in front of a parliamentary committee in 2022. When you were on this program at that time, you described the tone of Hockey Canada during those hearings as baffling. It was. I mean, I, you definitely got the sense that there was quite a bit, um, as there often is in cases like this, of, you know, institutional protectionism. And, um, you know, I, I don't think that there was <laughs> quite the acknowledgement of perhaps the gravity of this situation. Um, you know, I think there was some not a ton of introspection um, and quite a bit of sort of institutional defensiveness uh, when they were hauled in front of um, Canadian Parliament. And I think that the tenor of those hearings and, um, you know, the content of what they provided to Canadian lawmakers, I think really struck a chord 
with everyone who was paying attention. And I think it, you know, I think it sparked outrage, quite frankly. In, 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 in part because EM's case isn't the only one involving allegations of sexual assault. One of the things we learned during that testimony was that there, Hockey Canada deals with multiple sexual assault allegations every year, right? Absolutely. And the Globe and Mail did some incredible work um, in sort of discerning how Hockey Canada as an institution dealt with historical claims of sexual abuse and, and when they made settlements where that money came from and how that was subsidized um, by participation fees and such. So, you know, I think it really peeled back a layer and provided people a peek behind the curtains of of how these situations are handled at an organizational level from a national governing body that is tasked with oversight um, and, you know, the protection and well-being of young athletes. Mm. So I think it did spark a larger and needed conversation um, about abuse and sexual misconduct in sports and perhaps how pervasive and rampant that is and how often it is mishandled. In the last few minutes that we have, let's talk about what is often referred to as hockey culture. I talked to to Sheldon Kennedy uh, a few weeks ago, former NHL player, survivor of sexual abuse. He talked about toxic masculinity within hockey. People felt that, that this story in particular was going to lead to a reckoning when it came to issues of hockey culture. Has that happened, do you think? Has that reckoning unfolded? I think that's really tough to say definitively because I think a reckoning that um, of that proportion is hard to um, is hard to affect in a matter of a year or two. I mean, I really think that you know there is probably to some level intergenerational trauma, as I'm sure Sheldon could attest to. That you know there have been elements of hockey culture that have been you know insidious for decades. And I I think to expect that one case is going to act as, you know, a remedy or a cure-all or an anecdote um, to decades worth of entrenched cultural values, I think um, is perhaps a bit naive. You know, do I think that it has sparked needed attention and scrutiny in the right areas? Yes. Mm. I think it's an ongoing process that is far from over. Also, yes. I mean, there are questions about what the NHL has done around this issue, but also questions around Hockey Canada. Hockey Canada has new leadership. We've asked to speak with that new leadership. We've asked to speak on a number of occasions with the new CEO and president, Catherine Henderson. She says her goal is to rebuild trust with the Canadian public. How does she go about doing that, do you think? Just briefly. You know, I think the biggest thing to rebuild trust is ultimately transparency. And, you know, Hockey Canada is in some capacity still responsible for adjudicating um, this matter internally as they're doing right now. And so how transparent they're willing to be in this process and with the public, I think, will go a long way to answering the question of how much change um, we're going to see with even with a new leadership and overhauled board. You spoke with the MP Peter Julian, who said there's a long way to go. Yeah, I think he felt like yesterday was, again, um, an important, tangible first step. And I think he was heartened to see that. But he also said that he was profoundly saddened by the fact that, you know, this has gone on for so long and that the young woman who has come forward um, has gone through such an exhaustive ordeal 
um, and that, you know, so many people who have come forward with allegations of sexual abuse have felt um, neglected and abandoned by the federal government. And he just really stressed the need to put procedures and protections in place so that others do not endure that same uh, experience. Katie, I'm really glad to talk to you again. Thank you very much for your work as well. Thank you so much for having me. Katie Strang is a senior investigative writer with The Athletic. We did ask Hockey Canada for an interview or comment on this story. We did not hear back. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.